Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cracking Addiction with Philippe Naren and Fergal Armstrong. In the episode of Cracking Addiction today, we're going to continue on our series of talks about comorbidities with substance use disorder. And in the episode today, we're going to talk about the physical comorbidities associated with substance use disorders. And a lot of the time, there are a number of different physical comorbidities um, associated with substance use disorders. And I thought I'd start with one of the most complicated and largest comorbidities, and that would be chronic pain and how to effectively manage chronic pain in the setting of opioid use disorder. So, Fergal, do you have any tips or techniques in both the diagnosis as well as management of of chronic pain in, in, in this kind of setting? And I think you need to start off with understanding that chronic pain actually predisposes to substance use disorder. Chronic pain alters the brain's stress and reward systems such that the, you know, you're more susceptible to the, to the effects of opioids and the, the dependency effects of opioids. And we know, for instance, that up to 30% of patients who are on chronic high doses of opioids actually misuse their prescription opioids. And we also know by way of a, a warning that the, the, the road toll uh, in Victoria, i.e. the number of people who die on the roads in Victoria, is now lower than those who die from prescription uh, prescription drug misuse. And within that group of patients who have prescription drug misuse, the commonly misused drugs are first and foremost opioids and then secondly benzodiazepines. So we know that chronic pain and, prescri- and prescription opioid use and misuse is a significant contributor to death that exceeds the road toll. So that's really a warning sign to us all. You know, Our prescription pads are actually killing more people than reckless driving on the roads. That's the, I mean, I, I don't know of any greater clarion call to arms to, to, the, to the medical profession to actually do something about that than that statistic alone. The question then becomes, how do we manage chronic pain in the context of substance use disorder? Now, that's a, I mean, I'm sure that's an episode in itself, Philippe, and we can do that later. But just qu- very quickly, there are, I think I want to go through four myths the four myths of chronic pain or pain management in, um, in uh, substance use disorders. So firstly, it's, I have this mnemonic ARDS, A-R-D-S. So you've got to understand that opioid replacement therapy is not an analgesic. The, the anti-craving effect of opioid replacement therapy like methadone and buprenorphine, that lasts for more than 24 hours. And that's why we have daily dosing. The analgesic effect of these opioids maybe only lasts eight hours. And that's why the first thing that we do when we have someone in pain on opioid replacement therapies, we split those to maybe BD or TDS dosing. The second point is, is our relapse. People worry that treating pain, treating acute pain, or treating nociceptive pain with opioids is going to cause a relapse if you've got a history of substance use disorder. Well, actually, not treating acute pain or nociceptive pain with opioids, if appropriate, is actually a bigger risk factor for relapse. So it's actually you need to treat acute nociceptive pain. The next issue is depression, respiratory depression. So people think that treating uh, someone who's in acute nociceptive pain with opioids, if they've got uh, sub, if they've got the opioid replacement therapy on board, then that's going to cause a respiratory depression. Well, it's not. When the pain disappears or when the pain is cured, that's when you have to reduce the um, the, the the use of analgesic doses of opioids. 
And then as for seeking, doctors, uh, clinicians, you know, some of us do actually make judgments on patients who are requesting opioids for pain management in the, in the context of substance use disorder. But you have to take these requests for pain relief seriously. You know, in acute nociceptive pain, it is inappropriate to withhold opioids for patients on the basis that they're drug seeking. And the second point to make in this context is that patients who are opioid dependent, who are on treatment for substance use disorder, or for that matter, who are, you know, illicit opioid dependent, like heroin dependent, these patients require higher doses of opioids for longer periods of time than, pa than patients who are opioid naive. So they're not drug seeking, but they are, they are drug dependent and they do need more opioids to treat chronic or even acute nociceptive pain. Those are just a few pointers. Those are the, my four myths of, of pain management in, in uh, substance use disorder. ARDS, I think we'll have to leave it there and move on because we really do need a separate subject, a separate video on this subject itself. Oh, ab absolutely, Fergal. And chronic pain management is is a huge issue in in society. And as you've eloquently put it, there is a, a vast difference between acute pain management and chronic pain management. And if I could just add my own two cents here about chronic pain management, where the philosophy with chronic pain management needs to be away from medication and away from opioids. So I think most of the learned societies in Australia would say that uh, the, the place for opioids in chronic non-cancer pain is nearly non-existence and it's more about lifestyle management, physical management, physical therapy, activity and active management of, of those pain strategies. And that can be hard when there is a patient in front of you asking for, for opioid medications for chronic pain. But again, there are some guidelines that can help us with chronic pain management. So moving from chronic pain over to another area that is quite complex, and that is tobacco use. Um, mm. How do you manage uh, tobacco use in, in people with, with substance use disorders and dealing with the comorbidity, the significant comorbidity that exists with tobacco use? Because for lack of a better term, tobacco use in our society is somewhat normalised. And the health yeah. consequences of tobacco use are so, so damaging and so, so significant. Yeah. So I think, I think according to the last National Household Drug Survey, um, the data from which was collected in 2019, I think roughly, I think 10, 10 or 11% of people smoke tobacco. Whereas if you look at a cohort of patients with substance use disorder, you know, tobacco smoking is overrepresented more so than that background rate. So that, that, that's a kind of an empirical evidence for the fact that, you know, uh, there is a comorbidity between tobacco use and substance use disorder. There's also a, a comorbidity, a correlation between tobacco use and mental health disorder. We've already alluded to that, but basically, you know, the tobacco, I think of tobacco use disorder as simply a chronic dysphoria, chronic depression interspersed with episodic uh, nicotine intoxication. It's certainly overrepresented in patients with schizophrenia. Um, so how do we manage this? Well, I think there, there is a certain amount of therapeutic lassitude or apathy when it comes to managing tobacco use in, in patients with um, substance use disorder. You know, when we're faced with someone who's, you know, severely dependent on um, heroin, for instance, and their life is absolute chaos, ask ourselves this question, how often do we initiate discussions on tobacco use disorder and, you know, smoking cessation? You know, we don't. I mean, all right, do you, Philippe? 
In all honesty, uh, no, I don't. Uh, <laughs> in a situation like this, I, I would tend to focus on, on the heroin, first of all. And yeah. it, it, the, the rationale, uh, and I'm not trying to defend myself in this situation, but the rationale is that you want to maintain uh, the patient, quote unquote, on side. So you'll tackle the thing yeah. that might have the most acute life-threatening um, yeah. potential and then maybe at a later date tackle the chronicity of tobacco-related harm. But you're quite right, Fergal. Uh, a lot of the time, because uh, tobacco use is viewed as less harmful, one focuses most of the attention, if not all of the attention, on, on heroin use. Yeah, certainly in the acute stages. I mean, as you say, the key focus on someone who comes into your through your door with heroin use disorder, you've got to get them stabilized and you've got to keep them engaged. So you do focus on very quickly giving them control with opioid replacement therapy. But once you've got someone stabilized in opioid, uh, opioid replacement therapy, that's the time to start looking at all the comorbidities. And that's the time to identify tobacco use disorder, and that's the time to start treating it. And if I could say one word on, or, sorry, two words, on how we discuss or broach the discussion for tobacco use disorder, they, those two words would be motivational interviewing. You don't tell people to stop smoking. You encourage people to make their own ch their own choice to stop smoking, and I think that's the key principle of motivational interviewing, and it, it highlights the difference between complying with an instruction and choosing to make a behavioural change. There's no point in telling people to stop smoking; you're just wasting your breath and their time. But the other thing to to, to emphasise is that actually, tobacco smoking is is the cause of a significant physical comorbidity. You know, we all know that it causes lung cancer but you know, and, and, and causes emphysema, but it also causes heart attacks, strokes, peripheral vascular disease. It causes reduced immunity, leading to poor wound healing. It causes age-related macular degeneration. And it, of course, also causes a worsening of chronic pain. So think about the situation where you've got someone who's got who's got uh, emotional trauma, chronic pain because of a bad back and you know, from a previous horrendous road traffic accident, who's on, started out on OxyContin, that developed an OxyContin use disorder, then moved on to heroin, is depressed, is smoking, and is in chronic pain, and also uses alcohol to treat his chronic pain. I mean, you know, where do you start? And I think the, the, you've already alluded to the answers. If, you, you, if you're going to see someone with heroin use disorder, you start with stabilizing them on uh, opioid replacement therapy. But you have to address the smoking in that situation because of the potential impact of smoking on comorbidity, including chronic pain, and also the potential benefits for getting someone to stop smoking in that situation. So I reflect this back to you, Philippe, and what do you do to treat tobacco use disorder? So I try and talk to the patient about what their goals are in life, reflect the harms of tobacco use, use the motivational interviewing techniques that you've mentioned as well, and then utilize various forms of nicotine replacement therapy and potentially even uh, bupropion or veronicline if, if it's clinically safe and the patient's happy to trial yeah. this. But I try and yeah find out where the patient is on, on the cycle of change and then try and push them into the action phase and see where yeah. they're at. And this is probably a multi-consultation journey as well because a lot yeah. of the time for a lot of our patients, uh, they do not view smoking as necessarily a health issue or a health concern. So it's up to us to try and, and push our patients towards um, where we can try and 
assist them in, in minimising and seizing their tobacco use for, for their overall health and well-being. And Fergal, segueing a tiny bit off tobacco use onto something that I think a lot of um, people um, would view as, I guess, some of the bread and butter work of, of addiction medicine, and that is, I guess, managing some of the comorbid infectious diseases we sometimes see in, in people with substance use disorder. There's a lot of, that's been said about bloodborne viruses in particular, so hepatitis B, C and HIV, um, and, and the mm. risks associated um, with, with injecting drug use as well. But there's a lot more in terms of infectious diseases than just, say, the bloodborne viruses. Could you, could you uh, elucidate this topic a bit further? Yeah, so we've got the bloodborne viruses, but you've also got to think about the the other types of infections that patients with substance use disorders can acquire. And so you've got risky sexual behavior, so you've got all the sexually transmitted diseases, and risky sexual behavior is particularly associated with methamphetamine use disorder. And you've also got the risks associated with injecting, so you've got the gangrene, the cellulitis, the thrombophlebitis, and also the endocarditis. Uh, and of course, you know, subsequent to that, you're looking at loss of limb as well and potentially loss of life. And then, of course, you've also got abscesses in, in, in uh, the brain or the spinal cord. I mean, you know, the, the pain of a spinal cord abscess is indescribable. And, you know, patients with, with new onset back pain with a history of intravenous substance use, they need MRI scanning, they need to be admitted. You, you cannot just say, oh, you've just done your back and, you know, here's some Panadol and Brufin and do some stretching. New onset back pain, someone with a history of substance use disorder and injecting needs to be investigated with an MRI at the very least, urgently. And, and you know, you've, you've got up to, uh, you know, if you've got a good going abscess with, with pressure on the cord, you've got eight hours to, to fix it. You know, that's the time frame. If you don't fix it, you've got permanent neurological damage. Absolutely. And I think also something that we should mention is the need for repeat screening as well. Just doing it once is not yeah. enough. So with our patients in particular who inject drugs, it's important to have a routine practice where you will routinely screen and rescreen patients. And if someone mm. does test positive, say for hepatitis C, also make sure that you can um, test their injecting circle or the people that they inject drugs with or may share needles with yeah. just to make sure yeah. that we can treat the infection completely because treating someone for hepatitis C and, and curing hepatitis C is, is great, but then uh, you do not want them to get reinfected as well. So the I guess the take-home message is, of course, be aware of all these infections, but have a clear screening program in place and make sure you're willing to not only look at new symptoms, as you mentioned, Fergal, but also screen and rescreen as well. Yeah. On that subject, I mean, I remember my first ever diagnosis of uh, bacterial endocarditis. Um, this was a, I was literally in my first month of being a GP registrar in the United Kingdom. And I had this patient come in, he, he was he was working as a, he was a some form of office manager. And he came to me, just, he just looked tired. And he said something that he just happened to mention. I was asking about his, because I'd never met him before, I was asking about his past medical history. And he mentioned that, you know, a couple of years ago, he'd injected drugs. And I examined him. I couldn't find anything wrong with him. And I thought, and it was a Friday afternoon. 
And I just thought to myself, you know what? I'm just going to send him into hospital because he's tired and I don't know what's wrong with him. And he turned out to have subacute bacterial endocarditis. I didn't even think of that as a possible diagnosis. I was just being playing it safe because I didn't actually want to interrupt my my GP supervisor from his clinic. I just wanted to go home. And I knew that if I admitted the patient, it wouldn't be my problem. <laughs> but, you know, it was the right call. I, I lucked out on that one. But, you know, it, it, it illustrates the point that really the, 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 the presentation of subacute bacterial endocarditis is protein. It's varied. And you have a higher risk of SPE in someone with a history of injecting use. Absolutely. Now, we've talked on previous episodes about opioid and codeine misuse as well. Something we might not have spoken about much at all is, is chronic um, anti-inflammatory toxicity. So non-steroidal anti-inflammatory mm. drugs and, and their toxicity. Could you speak about this in a bit more detail, Fugle, about how they can affect um, the, the GI tract and, and the kidneys as well? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, again, I remember a case of someone who presents with, presented with recurrent metabolic acidosis of no known cause. And they had, um, they had a stomach ulcer. And they said they were using a lot of, um, it came out that they, they were using a lot of NSAIDs. And then the penny dropped because they were using Nurofen Plus. So, you know, because people are dependent on codeine, they also suffer the ill effects of the associated co-formulated drugs. So therefore, you know, chronic NSAID toxicity. So you need to be aware that chronic NSAID toxicity can cause various presentations. And the most interesting one of which, well, I find is that the, the, the one that I didn't really appreciate until I learned about it was, of course, this recurrent metabolic acidosis. But you can also get chronic NSAID nephropathy. You can get iron deficiency without anemia. You can get iron deficiency with anemia. These are all uh, presentations of chronic NSAID misuse. And you can get recurrent ulcer disease. And I can remember also investigating someone, going to great length investigating someone for Zollinger-Ellison syndrome because I thought they had that because they were getting all these ulcers. But, you know, I missed the fact that they were in chronic pain and they were using too much codeine and Nurofen Plus. So I would urge our listeners and viewers to learn from my mistakes and not make these mistakes again. Absolutely. And I guess talking about opioids in, in general, we do know that they can affect the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis as well. And I've certainly seen yeah. patients yeah. Um, have you know, uh, low, low intensity falls and have fractures as well. Is there, is, it, yeah. is there an approach you use to try and manage the complications with say chronic opioid use and, and the effect on the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis, Virgil? Yeah. I mean, it's important to understand that, you know, that, um, chronic high dose opioids can knock off testosterone, can knock off estrogen. So I tell that to people, I tell that to men and I say, you know, it's going to make your balls shrink. Tell that the women is going to reduce your fertility. And really, one of the best ways of doing that is actually do blood tests. All, you know, to actually have incontrovertible proof of you know, testosterone deficiency, you know, it's quite, it's quite um, shocking for some people. And then you can say to them, well, look, you know, this is the reason why. And my approach to that situation, if someone's got a substance use disorder, from, say for prescription opioids and has got a, as a proven testosterone deficiency, then it's quite useful to start them on buprenorphine because we know that uh, opioid-induced hypothalamic uh, dysfunction 
is less likely to be a problem with uh, buprenorphine because it's a partial agonist, but it's not impossible to still to have it. But you know, the way to actually reduce that risk, firstly, is to get them off full opioid agonists and onto, onto, onto buprenorphine. Then, of course, you need to start doing the general medical stuff, um, which involves you know, doing DEXA scans, DEXA scans, possibly using testosterone replacement therapy if appropriate, and then also looking at uh, anti-resorptive treatments, you know, like Prolia and things like that. But of course, you know, Medicare in Australia does not pay for DEXA scanning unless you've had a fragility fracture or you're over 70. Um, but so, so you, you know, this is a private uh, intervention. You've got to pay for this privately. So trying to tell someone with a history of substance use disorder, you need to shell out cash to get a DEXA scan. Well, that's an interesting conversation in itself. Absolutely. What would you say to that? It's, it's a valid point. It's, I think our job as doctors is to give our patient options, just like we give patients options for opioid substitution therapy, smoking cessation interventions, or any of the other interventions we want to do. I try and practice within the guidelines. So I, I see my job as presenting the options to the patient. If that's either A, unpalatable, or B, unaffordable, uh, so be it. If it's unaffordable and we can assist versus some community benefits program, I will try and put an application in. But um, I agree with you, Fergal. Uh, the patient, some patients do not see the benefit in this, um, so be it. But I, I feel uh, as, as their doctor, as their uh, primary care physician, it is, it is my responsibility to try and offer them uh, best practice care and the evidence-based care. So I do offer it. Uh, in all honesty, uh, the take-up is poor. But uh, uh, nevertheless, my, my, I feel my responsibility is discharged by offering it at least. Uh, and I'm sure that's your approach as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's, it's very complex. And I think really this speaks to the stigma that, that, that our patients suffer and the alienation from, and the, the, the separation, the disconnect that our patients suffer from society and, and, and also general medicine and general medical services. Um, you know, I've said in a previous episode that, that some of our patients, especially those with comorbid uh, borderline personality disorder and substance use disorder, they have a worse prognosis than those with cancer. Yet cancer is heavily invested. Cancer is, is, is you know, is, is a disease that is the focus of, of many, many campaigns for investment and research. We don't see those campaigns for investment and research in this group of patients. So one of our roles as, as doctors, I think, has got to be that of an advocate. We need to be advocating at all levels of society, including in Parliament, for improvement in services for these patients. And I think the other issue is, is that, and we'll come on to this in, in perhaps the next episode, that you know, really we have to advocate for our patients to the whole of society. And that itself is an interesting discussion. Absolutely, Fugel. And a lot of what we're trying to do with treating our patients is trying to reintegrate them into the medical system and continue that therapeutic relationship. And I'm sure you, like I, have seen people dramatically engage with the medical system, get tests, get screening tests, whereas previously one would have been surprised if they'd enter a general practice. After a year or a couple of years, a lot of my patients are aware of the screening test, comply with the screening test, and you see an almost diametric shift in their priorities and their healthcare, and the healthcare actually improves in leaps mm -hmm. and bounds. And I think that goes back to that point you made about engagement, just being there and 
advocating what is best practice and trying to follow the guidelines really does have an outsized influence in people's lives. And you'd be surprised how patients appreciate that and will actually comply with what you say. So I guess my, my takeaway is uh, don't judge a book by its cover uh, and continue trying to uh, provide best practice care. And I guess I'll get off my soapbox now and just try and summarize what we've said uh, in the episode of Cracking Addiction today. We've talked in detail about the physical comorbidities associated with substance use disorder. And we've gone through a, a gamut of conditions and um, screening tests and um, procedures to try and make sure that we screen patients appropriately for all their physical comorbidities um, alongside substance use disorder. So it's been another long episode. Thanks for your company on the episode and bye for now.